Well, good morning. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, Glad you are here this morning. Uh, My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, So glad to have you with us. Uh, Parents, if you have elementary school age kids and you want to dismiss them now to uh, children's time, I would encourage you to do so. Our our teachers will be in the back. And and let me give just a little disclaimer this morning, uh, specifically for the parents, but really for anybody. Uh, Our narrative this morning does contain some graphic content. So uh, I'm not going to go into a ton of depth about it, but I just wanted to make you aware of that this morning, uh, that there is a pretty graphic moment in in the narrative this morning. So if you didn't want the children to be exposed to that uh, this morning, or if you feel like that that might be difficult for you, uh, I I just wanted to let you know about it if you wanted to to step out. Um, If... Uh, this is your first time with us or you don't have a scripture journal and you would like one, just raise your hand and we'll have a volunteer bring one of those around to you. That's our free gift to you. Even though this is our last week of Judges, we would still love to give those away. Uh, go ahead and turn over to Judges chapter 19. Um, that, that's where we're going to start this morning. We're actually going to go through uh, three separate chapters of scripture um, this morning. Um, I said in my sermon last week, that as we were moving into this last section of the book of Judges, uh, that Judges 17 began a shift uh, in, in the direction of where the author of Judges was trying to take us, that there was something different that he was trying to uh, unveil to us. And earlier in Judges, we had kind of seen this consistent pattern throughout the book. What we saw was Israel rebels against the word of God, And from that rebellion, an oppressor would arise from outside of Israel. And then from that, God would raise a judge up to deliver Israel from that oppression. And it was just kind of this like repeated pattern over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And last week I said that this shift was occurring because the author of Judges is trying to show us that every time Israel rebelled, the rebellion got worse. And the rebellion gets so bad by the time we're at this point in the book of Judges that what the author wants us to see is that there's really even no longer a need for oppression from the outside to have God's people realize how bad things are getting because the moral and religious decay of Israel is leading to a complete societal decay. You know, last week, the story was the story of Micah and him having kind of done this create your own religion adventure uh, story that he he had done last week, and you know the story is he had stolen money from his mom, and then he uh, gave that money back to his mom, and his mom allows him to create his own temple of worship for Yahweh uh, in their in their town, and then that led to the tribe of Dan adopting that false religion, and so what we saw last week is we're kind of witnessing this societal decay inside the nation of Israel as we saw the religious decay side of that. Um, This morning, we're going to see something really more tragic. Um, So I'm going to attempt to do two things with our our time in the text. The first is I'm going to spend probably the first 20, 25 minutes or so inside of the the actual narrative of the story. I'm going to try to unpack it as best I can, but just know that it's three chapters, so you're going to have to accept a summary. We're not going to be able to read all three chapters together. Uh, But then I want us at the end to take that narrative, and I want us to focus in on the thesis of the end of the book of Judges which was what was read for us in our time in Scripture this morning, which was Judges chapter 21, verse 25, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That has been repeated now 
a number of times towards the end of the book of Judges. See, the author of Judges believes that the lack of a king and strong leader is what is leading Israel to its moral, religious, and ethical decline. That, that is kind of the point that the author of Judges wants us to see is that as Israel has spiraled more and more out of control, the primary reason for that is that they don't have a king. And this, is, this idea is backed by the flow of the book. If you think about what we've seen, every time a godly judge arose inside of Israel, it was marked with some level of Israel's return back to Yahweh and worshiping him. And so it is the, the author of Judges' opinion and thesis that a lack of a king is what is really, really holding back Israel because they have no true direction. They have no true leader kind of forcing them to focus on God and not allowing things to spiral out of control. But what we're going to see is Israel's real deep issue, and we talked about this last week, is that ultimately their propensity is to try to fashion God in their own image and likeness. And because they do that, a question we need to ask ourselves as we're seeing this story this morning is would a king really have been able to rescue Israel from themselves? Would he really have been able to keep them from the sad state of affairs that we're going to witness this morning in the book of Judges? And so let's go ahead and look at the text, starting in Judges chapter 19. And I've kind of given each chapter its own little name so that we can understand what's going on. So chapter 19, what we're going to see is the story of, uh, of Gibeah, a city uh, inside of the Benjaminite territory. And we, it's Gibeah, the new Sodom. And here's some kind of things that you need to know. If you thought the story of Micah last week was crazy and sad and tragic, buckle up because this one's a whole new level of tragic. So it starts out in chapter 19, there's this Levite who's living in the land of Ephraim. And he has this, this concubine who's unfaithful to him. And so the concubine's unfaithful. And once she's unfaithful, it doesn't really tell us exactly the whole story of what happens, but she ends up running back to her dad and goes to his home in Bethlehem. And so eventually the Levite finds out where she is and he goes to Bethlehem to retrieve his concubine and he stays for days in Bethlehem and the concubine's father treats him really, really well and they, they enjoy drink and they stay together and the, the concubine's father keeps trying to convince him to stay and stay and stay and finally he's like, no, we have to go. We have to go back to Ephraim. That's, that's where I live. That's where I'm supposed to be. And so he leaves late one day with his concubine and as they're on the road, returning back to their homeland, they pass by Jerusalem, which at the time was called Jebus because it was owned by the Jebusites. The Israelites had not fully taken control of it yet. And one of the guys that's with the Levite encourages him to stay in Jerusalem. And he says, no, we, we shouldn't stay there. This isn't our land. This isn't our territory. You get the idea that he thinks it's unsafe for them to stay in this city because it's not Israel, an Israelite city. And so they continue to march forward, even though it's getting later and later in the day. And they arrive in Gibeah. And Gibeah was a city inside of Benjaminite territory. And so they, are, they, they get to, to Gibeah and 
You know, the Levite, is, from what we can tell, is relatively wealthy. He's got uh, things to be able to provide for himself and take care of himself. But what commonly would happen during this time period is if you were able to take care of yourself and you went into a city, the Israelites were kind of required by law to take care of one another. And so someone was supposed to take him and his concubine and those that were traveling with him in and give them shelter for the evening. And it says that when they were in Gibeah that they were staying in the square because no one would take them in that those that had lived in this city were not interested in following the word of God, were not interested in providing hospitality to this Levite, and so that they were just planning on staying in the open city square until a man from Ephraim who's living in the area comes in from working and sees them and invites them into his home and allows them to stay with him for the night. So we're already kind of getting this picture that something bad's kind of setting up that they wouldn't stay in this foreign city because they were worried about not being taken care of, but then they arrive in Gibeah and they're not being taken care of. And the Benjaminites in particular are not providing any level of hospitality, but there is this Ephraimite who is living in the city who's willing to provide some level of hospitality and care for this Levite and his concubine. And I want you to look starting in verse 22 of chapter 19 with me. We're going to see a horribly sad story begin to be unpacked for us. As they were making their hearts merry. So this is referring to the Levite and the Ephraimite as they're inside this guy's house. They're eating, they're drinking, they're enjoying one another's company. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now that is English translation for they wanted to rape him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. So here you have the men of this city who have already displayed that they have no desire to follow God. To not do even the most basic of things that God would ask his people to do, which was provide hospitality to one who was sojourning through their land. And then the real depth of their wickedness begins to be unveiled before us, right? They come and they they want to rape this Levite man who's traveling through their town. They try to stop him, but the men continue to press on the door, and eventually the man sends out his concubine. And for those of you that are sitting there wondering why in the world would he do this, I, I don't know. I do know that she cheated on him, and so maybe maybe part of his anger kicked in there. I, I don't know. But he sends his concubine out. And I think this is important to remember because 
It's going to be easy to focus on the Benjaminites in this story and see their wickedness, but there's plenty of wickedness to go around in this story, guys. And this Levite sends her out. They rape her, murder her, and they leave her body at the door when they're done with her. And the next part of the story is equally tragic because the Levite gets up the next morning and he sees his his concubine at the door and he tells her to get up and she doesn't move and he realizes that she's dead. And it says he just simply picks her up, puts her on the back of a donkey and takes her back to Ephraim with him. And then once he arrives home, the end of chapter 20 says that he cuts her body into 12 equal parts and sends them out to the various tribal leaders of Israel to show what had happened. The author of Judges is trying to show something to us here, to try to get us to grasp something that is going on here. That the growing godlessness inside of Israel is leading to a complete moral and societal decay of God's people. And the parallels with this story in Judges chapter 19 can be compared directly with Genesis 19. That's the story of Sodom. If you're familiar with that story, right before then, the angels had the, the, the angel of the Lord and two other messengers had appeared to Abraham and told him that they were heading to bring judgment on Sodom for what had happened and their wickedness. And you see, you remember this story where Abraham basically pleads with the, the messenger of the Lord saying, hey, if you find anyone righteous there, will you spare the city? And, and eventually he says, yes, but as we come to find out, there is no one righteous in that city. And in Genesis 19, the angels end up arriving in Sodom and they find Lot who is related to Abraham. And he takes them in, and in the same way that the men of Gibeah try to rape the Levite man who is in their city, the men want to do the same to these messengers in Sodom. And Lot tries to give his two virgin daughters to, to appease the passions and the wickedness of these men inside of Sodom. But in that story, instead of those two daughters being raped, and violated by the men of that city, the angels instead strike the mob with blindness and rescue Lot and his daughters from the city. But in Judges 19, there are no angels there to hold back the wickedness of men. And the concubine dies, and the Levite sends out pieces of her corpse to show Israel what it has become. The author of Judges' point is quite clear to any that would be reading this, especially those that would have grown up in Israel. Gibeah has become the new Sodom. And their wickedness has reached a level the likes of which have not been seen since the day God had utterly destroyed this city. Failure to follow Yahweh, to worship Him as He has commanded them, to follow his law, 
has not just led to the oppression from other nations, but has led to a complete internal and moral decay inside of Israel. I mean, pause and think for a minute, guys. What level of overall pervasive wickedness would have to have occurred inside of society to allow something like this to go on? For men not to stand up to the wickedness of these other men. For women to have to continue to tolerate it, to allow it to get to this point. This is, a, this is not just a few men inside of a city who are allowing their passions and their sinfulness to have become completely out of control. They are a symptom of a complete societal breakdown and decay. It's easy for us to sit here and say, well, I would never allow this to happen. I would have been willing to give my life to defend the honor of those who are there. But the reality is, is oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where decay is all around us and we don't speak up for the word of God. We don't do the hard thing. And so God is allowing us as the readers to just sit in this, to sit in the tragedy of what not following after God looks like. The true depth of how horrible it can be. And then he takes us into the next phase of the story in Judges chapter 20, which is civil war. That's what ends up happening is civil war. The 11, tri- 11 of the 12 tribes, once they receive the, the cut-up corpse of this concubine, are outraged. It says that there's complete outrage over this being sent to them. And, th- and so they gather together, and they go to this Levite to figure out exactly what had happened, because there's clear shock. They're, they're like, what, what would have possessed a Levite to have send, sent pieces of a corpse to all of us? And so once they arrive and they find out what exactly had happened to her, Israel decides to go to Gibeah united and confront the wickedness. And Israel, once they arrive outside of Gibeah, they talk to the tribal leaders of the tribe of Benjamin and they give them an ultimatum. They say, give up the men who committed this heinous act. Give them over to us that we might give them justice that we might see God's justice done. So you, you begin to see that it was like, finally, it took something this horrible to wake Israel up and realize how bad things really were. And so they arrive outside of Gibeon and they say, we, we're, gonna, we're gonna confront you. We're gonna confront this wickedness. We're gonna bring justice to what has happened here. And the tribal leaders of Benjamin, instead of giving these men up, say, no, we're not giving them up over to you. You can't tell us what to do. You see the the tribal factions that have now formed with this wickedness? Like, well, those are our brothers. Who cares what they did? We're still going to support them no matter what until the end. And so civil war breaks out. 
And it, and it records there in Judges chapter 20 that there are roughly 26,000 Benjaminites versus 400,000 Israelites. That, that's, what, that's what we're up against here. So you would think just by common sense that the Benjaminites would have been like, this is not a great idea. Maybe we shouldn't do this. And yet they are resolved to protect their own people at all costs. And so war breaks out. And Judges chapter 20 is going to record three separate battles that occurred between the Benjaminites and the Israelites who had gathered to war against them. And one, there, there's a consistent pattern in, 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 the, in the battles. Israel actually brought the high priest with them when they're going to war with Benjamin. So there's like this moment where the level of wickedness that had occurred inside of Israel wakes Israel up to start doing some things that it was supposed to have been doing all along. And it says that they inquire of God whether they should go to battle or not. And it, it's really interesting because each time they inquire of God in the first two battles, God just says something very specific to them. Yes, go to battle. And so in the first battle, he says that Judah is supposed to go first. And so Israel uh, arranges itself to battle and they go out to battle the first day and Israel is routed. They lose 22,000 men in the first day of battle. And so they weep and they mourn and they retreat. And Benjamin's sitting there like, we told you not to mess with us. And so the second day approaches. And once again, Israel inquires of God. They say, God, should we go to battle against our own people again? Do you want us to do this? And God responds, yes, go to battle. And they go to battle and Israel loses another 18,000 men in battle that day. They are completely routed. And so at this point, there's more weeping, sorrow. You, you, feel, you can feel the tension for the Israelites. They're like, we're, God, we're trying to execute justice. You're, you're telling us to go to battle. Why are you allowing us to be routed so easily by the Benjaminites? So they step back, they weep, they mourn. And then on the third day, they, st they stand up again and they go to him again. And I want you to see, starting in verse 27 of Judges chapter 20, what happens. And, and you'll notice maybe a few differences on this third day, but look at this. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said to them, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country and about 30 men of Israel. 
And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Mareh Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. You'll notice that God says something to the Israelites at the start of this third day that is, that is a little bit different than the previous day. He tells them to go up to battle, but then he says this, I will give them into your hand. He had not promised that the previous two times. And on this third day, Benjamin is routed. And if you do the math from earlier in Judges chapter 20, you'll learn that there are only about 600 men left who fled to the rock of Rimon from the Benjaminite tribe. Let me, let me paint a picture for you. This pretty much means the tribe of Benjamin, as we know it, is done. One of the 12 tribes of Israel has been completely wiped out in one day of fighting. Justice has finally been executed, but at what cost? At the cost of 40,000 Israelite lives and another 25,000 Benjaminites, one of the tribes being completely blotted out. And I want to just pause for a second here because I know we're kind of moving through this narrative rather quickly, but I want to just pause to maybe, maybe say something with some application here. Justice, God's way, is costly. It always is. I don't want to spend a bunch of time on this, but if as God's people, we are going to be horrified by wickedness in our midst, including even at times our own. And if we're going to follow God's design, we must understand that standing against wickedness will be costly. This might mean to put to death the wickedness in your own life. It's going to cost you friends, routines, and comforts. This means if we're going to stand for the word of God and be for God's justice, it might lead to loss in other areas. I know people that have lost jobs, friends, family, and other things for the sake of standing up for God's word and his standard. But my encouragement to you would be this. God's justice is worth it. And if you're like, I, I, I've been told this at times and I, I just feel led to remind you, you know, pastor, you, you don't understand. You know, like if, if I demand this, I'll, 
I'll, I'll, lose my, I'll lose my parents. I won't, I won't have friends anymore. I'm going to lose my entire friend group. Like you just, you just don't understand what the cost is. And I'd say, maybe I don't. But when it came to exacting justice for our sin and rebellion against the creator of the universe, the cost was far higher than anything you or I would ever have to pay. It cost the life of God's own son. And yet he was willing to lean into that, to deliver us and see justice brought forth. And as God's people, God encourages us to follow his example, no matter what the cost might be. And what I want us to see as we transition into chapter 21 is that Israel has paid this heavy, heavy cost to see justice restored to Israel, to see God's justice enacted. But what you're going to see then is that they're going to move from paying this incredible penalty to see this justice brought forth, and then they're not willing to see it through, and they begin to compromise. Look at chapter 21 with me. Benjamin is now destroyed. For all intents and purposes, they, do, they don't exist anymore as a tribe in the nation of Israel. And Israel actually enters into mourning over this, which I think is actually, if you, if you, st- if you stop and pause and think about it, it's really beautiful. They were, they were brought to do something that they knew they had to do, but it doesn't mean that they found it easy. And they mourn over the loss of their brothers. And then they begin to start saying, well, how can we fix this? And you'll notice that they don't ever consult with God on this. You know, they were willing to consult with God before they entered into battle each time, but they never consult with God once on how possibly God might bring beauty from this destruction. They try to start solving the problems themselves. And so often, guys, we are tempted to do this ourselves. We see injustice and we might even walk forward and trying to bring God's justice in a situation. But then once things get difficult, we start trying to solve the problem ourselves instead of leading into God and his word. Because that's the easy way. And so the Israelites do this really, really odd thing. The, the 11 remaining tribes of Israel, they say, well, because of what Benjamin has done, we're not going to let any of our daughters become husbands to the, excuse me, become wives to the remaining 600 men that are left from the tribe of Benjamin. We're done with them. It's over. We are, we are not going to associate with this tribe. But then, because they've made this oath before God and before one another, they're finding that the oath they've made doesn't exactly fall in line with how they're feeling about the situation. How many of you guys have ever promised that you would do something for the Lord, but then when the time actually came, you didn't really want to follow through on it? That's where these 11 tribes are. 
And so they're standing there and they've made this oath and they don't want to face the reality of it. So they, they start concocting different ways to get around their oath that they made. So the first one they come up with is that there was this one kind of partial part of a tribe in Israel who did not come out to war with them, Jabesh Gilead. And so they decide, well, I know what we'll do. We'll just go wipe out Jabesh Gilead. And once we've killed them for not coming to battle with us, we'll take all of their daughters and give them to the remaining men. And so there's 400 of them and they take them and give them to Benjamin and they make a truce with Benjamin. But Benjamin basically responds and says, hey, there's 600 of us and 400 of them. This doesn't add up. This is not a good recipe for population regrowth. This isn't going to work. And so Israel then concocts this crazy plan to get around the oath that they had all made to one another because none of the fathers could give their daughters to a Benjaminite man in, in marriage. So this is what they say. Yearly, there's a dance and a celebration that occurs at Shiloh and the unmarried virgin daughters would go out and they would dance in the fields outside of Shiloh to celebrate the harvest and what God had done. So when the daughters are dancing, here's, here's, here's the plan they concoct. The Benjaminite men who are unmarried are allowed to hide out in the fields and go and just steal the women. Because that way, if they're stolen, technically the fathers didn't give them away. Now, you concocted the plan, so technically you are. You're just doing it in a truly wicked way so that you don't have to face any of the consequences in the oath that you took. See how their compromise has grown their unwillingness to have to deal with the reality of dealing justice is forcing them to compromise more and more and creating more and more issues for them. And look at verse 23 with me in chapter 21. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Story ends. Compromise after compromise after compromise. <laughs> Some of you guys, like I, when, when, I, when I was telling that story of giving away the, the daughters in, in that way and allowing them to be stolen. I could, I could see some of your faces. You're like, what the heck? Yeah, I hear you. But again, we see men doing their own thing, choosing their own forms of justice and reconciliation and being unable to deal with the consequences and reality of it. And then the author of Judges provides us no summary provides us no information on what God was doing during this time period. He just simply tells the story. And then he leaves us with this in verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, what the author of Judges wants us to see is when we try to become the arbiters 
of what is right and wrong, you can expect complete moral decay to exist. Because man will continue to compromise and men will continue a cycle of wickedness over and over and over. Now, in two chapters, excuse me, in two, in two books, two books after we finish up the book of Judges here, right? You arrive at 1 Samuel. And you see in, the, in, in 1 Samuel that Israel demands a king because they view this as the reason for all of their trouble. They look to the nations around them and they say, oh, well, the nations around us have a king and that's why we're struggling. There's no centralized authority overseeing us. If we just had a king, all this stuff wouldn't happen. Benjamin wouldn't have gone astray and we, we would be doing what God told us to do. If, if, if we just had a king, we need a king. Give us a king. And Samuel pushes back on them and tell, tells Israel, you have a king. You've always had a king. Yahweh is our king. God has been our king from the beginning. You've always had him. That Yahweh has been Israel's king this entire time. That he had made them a people when they were not a people. That he had led them out of Egypt when they were slaves to Pharaoh that he had given them the promised land that he had promised to their first father, Abraham, as he had come out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. They had covenanted with them the blessing that if they obeyed him, it would go well with them in the land. That God had been their king this entire time. They just didn't want to follow him. And Israel still does not want to follow that king. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. Like their first parents, Adam and Eve, instead of trusting and following God and his goodness, they wanted to be like God deciding what was good and evil. And really, if you follow throughout the Old Testament what you see, is just that story on repeat. You see God's people following the same pattern of Adam and Eve, living in a constant state of confusion, doing what is right in their own eyes, seeing what that yields experiencing sorrow and then crying out to God again and again once they have been the authors of their own sorrow. They follow God's laws when it's convenient or when things get bad and then they go their own way to do their own thing when they feel otherwise. And the same tragic story plays throughout the scripture. Israel sins, Israel suffers, God delivers. Israel sins. Israel suffers. God delivers. Over and over and over again. You know, it's really easy to look at Israel and roll our eyes. You know, one of my fears is that we would read the story this morning and think, we've, we, we've advanced as a society beyond something like this. 
You know, we, we finally achieved some level of educational nirvana where we were too cultured to allow something like this to happen in our day. In, in our midst, we've become so educated and so smart, we wouldn't allow something like this to happen. We've, we would have elected the right officials or we would have created the right laws or we would have provided enough education to people when they were younger. They would know something like this should never happen. We would never allow something like this to happen. And yet I would submit to you, we live in a time and I would submit to you that every generation before us has lived in a time where man does what is right in his own eyes. Guys, there is nothing new under the sun. It might look a little different. But mankind is doing the exact same thing they've been doing for thousands of years. And it is yielding the same results over and over and over again. We see in our society, even today, things that God declares to be clearly wicked, celebrated in our midst. Sexual immorality. Abortion. Stealing. Violence. Murder. Racism. I can see some of your all's faces. Like, do I need to give you specific examples? Like, we don't celebrate murder. What about when two nations are at war and you want one side to win and not the other? Economically, allowing people to be taken advantage of, specifically the poor. Guys, these things don't just occur in cultures all around the world. They're celebrated. Because if there's one thing that human beings tend to cherish above all else, it's power and doing what is right in their own eyes. And when the wickedness is finally enough, we see people crying out for a king. But they never cry out for the right one. And church, hear me when I say this. We're just as guilty of crying out to the wrong king as well. Think about the kings we hear cried out to. Be ready, guys. I'm going to start calling out some idols. Just be ready. Politics. If we just get that right man or woman into that right position in politics and they're able to legislate, all of this will be fixed. Money and power. If we just had enough money, if we just had enough power, we could lord over those who don't understand what they're doing is wrong and bring them into glad submission. Education. If we can just brainwash people when they're young enough, they'll never do the wrong thing moving forward. The list could go on and on and on. Church, if there's been one thing that 
that's really maybe disappointed me in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years of, of, of following Jesus is how often we act like we don't have a king. And so we try to install some false one over us. And hear me when I say this. Like Israel did in the days of the judges, we have a king. And he is far better than any king you could possibly imagine. I, I love when I'm talking to somebody about politics. Jackie's not, but I love it. And they'll just be like, well, what kind of government do you agree? And I'm like, I'm a monarchist. I'm like, you believe in a monarchy? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I already follow my king. And he's the greatest king you could possibly imagine. Think about what Israel lacked during this season and think about if Yahweh had been their king, how much more beautiful life could have been for them. Think about the season and time we live in and if we would just simply submit ourselves to King Jesus, how much better our lives would be. Guys, think about King Jesus for a minute. I've got five things I wanna point out to you about King Jesus King Jesus is truth, right? John 14, verse six, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Think about how much our society argues over what right and wrong is. We don't need to worry about that. Jesus is like, I am the truth. You wanna know what's right in a given situation? I am. You don't need to debate it. You don't need to try to figure it out. It's me. I am truth. Follow me. Second point. We live in a time where we see brokenness all around us and we want release from our burdens. Jesus actually delivers us from them. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Look at what Jesus promises to his followers. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus' promise to us is we don't have to try to be like the Israelites figuring out what to do with the tribe of Benjamin. That Jesus will lead us through everything. That we don't have to try to work and bring justice and do everything ourselves and our own power and our own thinking and our own way of doing things. This doesn't mean that we don't get to partner with him at times. But we don't have to try to have all the answers that he has done it for us. And that ultimately, the biggest thing that you and I struggle with is that we have a sense of moral obligation, maybe even in our own heart, maybe it doesn't even come into line with the word of God, and yet we don't even follow our own standard. 
And Jesus' promise to us is that we don't need to take up our own yoke. We don't need to take up our own burden, but instead we put on his because he has already done it for us. Third thing that makes King Jesus better than any other king, Jesus actually values us. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning. I'm fairly confident in what I'm about to say. Your elected officials do not care about you. I don't care what party you're a part of. They don't care. If I'm wrong, I'll eat crow. Someone can come up to me afterwards and give me, an, give me empirical evidence that they actually care. I would love to be taught. But I think I've been alive long enough to make, make that assessment. They don't care. And yet look at what Jesus is said about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, he's telling them, look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what the author of Hebrews is saying there is that Jesus so values his sheep, his people, that looking to the cross was joyous for him because he knew he was rescuing us. He actually cares about you. It's not just like some ethereal idea that has been thrown out there that we think like, hey, I think he might care. No, he actually does. God the Son actually put on human flesh and submitted himself to the point of death, death on a cross to liberate you. Because he values you. Because he cares about you. King Jesus is compassionate in a way that most kings are not. Throw up Matthew 14, 14 for me. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Guys, the gospels are littered with examples of Jesus showing compassion and sorrow for those that are around him. And I might submit to you often in situations where they don't actually deserve that compassion and sorrow because that is who our king is. And then lastly, King Jesus forgives. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, we can run to the world to try to fix ourselves, to solve our problems, to demand justice, or we can run to King Jesus. And sometimes that might mean we don't do anything at all, but we just sit and wait. King Jesus, the deliverer, the one who satisfied God's wrath, delivered us from sin 
and gives new life. Church, may we be known for what Israel was not known for. Running to their king. Trusting their king. I think one of the greatest compliments I've ever heard a non-Christian give churches that I've been a part of. I say, hey, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor at this this church called Alethea, have you ever you ever heard of it? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Like, oh, okay. Like, are, are you a Christian? No, you know, it's not really my thing or whatever else. It gets talking like, but I, I know those people, man, they're like, they're kind of crazy about Jesus. Yes. Maybe even certifiably insane. Label it. I want that diagnosis. That I'm so enthralled with the King of Kings that my life is forever changed. So here's how we're going to respond this morning. We're going to go to King Jesus. No matter where you're at in here this morning, whether you've been a believer for 50 years or you're in here this morning and you're not a believer, we're going to go to King Jesus. We take communion every week here at Aletheia Church. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you can, after I'm done praying, go and grab the elements, go back to your seat. And I want you just to take a, a moment during, during the, the band's playing to just repent of sin, confess that sin before the King of Kings and know that he is faithful to forgive you. And I want you just to ask him, Lord, what would it look like for me this week to bring my life in line with you as king? What would it look like? And start doing that. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, you got nothing to lose, pray and ask that question. God, if you're real, what would it look like for me? What would, how would my life look different? if I were to start following you as king. And then ask whoever brought you here this morning, you may be shocked at the answer they would give on what your life might look like, how their life was changed by King Jesus. And then we're gonna stand up and we're gonna sing together, all hail King Jesus. Because he is our king, worthy of worship, obedience, and praise. Let's pray.